Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the AHPBA podcast. Today's episode features someone who needs very little introduction, Dr. Magella Doyle. Dr. Doyle is a transplant surgeon, professor of surgery in the Mid-America Transplant Department of Surgery, Distinguished Endowed Chair in Abdominal Transplantation at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. Many will also know her, of course, as the most recent AHPBA president from 2022 to 2023. We discussed a variety of topics in this interview, including Dr. Doyle's journey from Ireland to the United States, her entry into robotic surgery, as well as the care of patients with cholangiocarcinoma. We hope you enjoyed the episode. So uh, welcome, everybody, back to another episode of the HPBA podcast. We are very honored to have Dr. Magella Doyle from WashU in St. Louis. Uh, Dr. Doyle, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, usually we kind of kick things off by just kind of giving you the floor and letting you tell us a little bit of your story. Kind of, you know, you had a fairly interesting training track and everything. So tell us how you decided to go into the field that you're in, what made you want to be a transplant surgeon and how you got to where you are today. Well, first of all, thank you, um, all of you, for uh, listening to me and and having me on the podcast. I'm super excited to be here. Yeah, I had a very uh, circuitous route uh, to get here. I um, had no intention of practicing in America when I was in Ireland training. And I spent all of my years in my residency, if you would call it that, it's a little different the way we train in Ireland because we do sort of an internship and a junior residency and then we do research and then we do a senior residency, which we call higher surgical training. And in my higher surgical training years, I'd always planned to go away for a year or two to study, um, you know, an area of expertise uh, because most people go away for fellowship from Ireland and then um, go back home to work work and the most common areas you know are colorectal and vascular and uh, hepatobiliary surgery is not as uh, as common because there are so few jobs in Ireland as well as in America so it's a common problem everywhere but in Ireland particularly because the population is much smaller it's only about four million people uh, there really aren't that many hepatobiliary surgeons and uh, most of the hepatobiliary surgeons at least when I was training also did transplants so kind of like the Latin American model where um, a lot of um, HPB surgeons are trained in transplant and do both um, similar to Europe and the rest of the world so anyway I decided to to come and um, do my fellowship um, in the U.S. once I had decided to do hepatobiliary surgery and Honestly, the way I ended up here was so random because I was at an IHBPA in uh, in Washington and I was with one of my mentors in Ireland, Jerry McEntee, and we literally just were walking down the hallway and bumped into Will Chapman uh, from Washington University. And uh, Will and Jerry had actually trained together in the early 90s in King's College in London. And uh, Will had recently moved to Washington University. And so he was like, oh, you know, well, if you're looking for a fellowship, you should come to WashU. You can do some HBB with, with Steve Strasberg and you can do some transplant. And I'd always intended in doing transplant in my training uh, one way or the other, because I figured if I went back to Ireland, I'd need to be a transplant surgeon as well. And so um, I ended up coming to WashU. And uh, honestly, that was in 2005. And again, I had no intention of staying. I did my transplant fellowship as well as um, HBB throughout the whole two years. Uh, but it was long before there was any dedicated HPB fellowships, but um, or at least a couple, few couple of years before they started. So I stayed on, and then they convinced me to stay on the faculty. 
at the time there was no job in Ireland anyway, because in Ireland, um, whatever about uh, jobs here, as I mentioned earlier, jobs in Ireland, somebody has to retire or die in order for a job to come up, you know, so it's not like a hospital can just create a job um, <clears throat> because it's all government run and depends on numbers and finances and all that sort of thing. So I ended up staying and then by the time there was a job, sure, I was settled in the US at that stage. So it was kind of hard to um, find the uh, wherewithal to move back and the health service is kind of a mess. And over here, <clears throat> it's um, it's really it's really truly a privilege to to work in our field. Um, I feel in America we can offer so much. And uh, and so, yeah, so here I am nearly 20 years later. Um, you complete medical school, surgical resident, and uh, your research fellowship in Ireland and, uh, before coming to the state for fellowship and practice. How do you think your international perspective had influenced your clinical practice? Yeah, it's a really great question, and I wouldn't change anything because I think training in um, different countries is amazing. Honestly, training in different institutions, in my opinion, is extremely fabulous. And um, I would recommend anybody who has the opportunity to train in another institution, even if it's not really to train, but to go to another institution. Um, it's it's amazing. Um, <clears throat> in Ireland, you know, we have a very strong public health system. And so you really patients are treated differently. And so if somebody comes into the emergency room and they're 80 and they have a ruptured AAA, you're gonna be having comfort care talks with the family, you know? Here, it's a completely different story. Everybody goes to the end of the earth to, um, to save this patient and, and then they may or may not survive or they may or may not have a good or bad quality of life. And I'm not saying one is right and one is wrong, but to have the perspective of both is um, very valuable. And I, I, I'm grateful for the fact that I have seen both sides because I've seen patients who come in and look like they're on death's door, survive here and go back to normal life. And I've seen patients who are months and months in the ICU who end up having a horrible quality of life and are dying very slowly. So I don't know the right answer, but I can tell you that having that perspective is very valuable. Also, just seeing how people do things in, in different places and um, understanding a complete public health system where if you have anything that's other than a cancer, you're going to wait for a long time to get seen with your back pain or your varicose veins or your hip replacement or your cataracts. Uh, whereas over here, that doesn't exist, you know. Um, and if I'm doing, if I'm planning to do a liver section in Ireland, um, on Monday, I may or may not be doing it because there may or may not be a bed available for the patient. Uh, over here, it's much more, much better organized. And, and it's not, it's, it's, it's better in many ways at home now in Ireland, but it's still, it's far from perfect. And uh, the public health system has a lot of problems. Now it serves, you know, everybody, but it's, it has a lot of problems. So great perspective from that, from that point of view. And I spent, uh, when I was um, 2013, so I was, and attending for a few years, I went to, Bill Jarnigan wanted to come down to St. Louis to see a bit of transplant. So he came for two weeks and kind of scrubbed on some transplants and, and um, sort of saw what transplant was all about. And so I said, well, I'll go, if you come down here, I'm going to go up to New York for two weeks. And so I did, a, we did a swap and I went up to New York for two weeks and I worked with Bill and Mike and 
Um, it was great fun. And so that was really what started our fellow swap because um, our fellows swapped then in, in uh, their second year fellow. They swapped for a month um, in May and at the end of the fellowship and sort of get that flavor of Sir Jonk and the and the fellows from Memorial get a transplant experience that they don't already get, that they wouldn't otherwise get. And so that's worked very well. Um, and so just even that little flavor of two weeks in Memorial was so interesting just to see how other people operate. So if you ever, any of you ever have an opportunity to go and observe in another institution, I would take it. It's uh, really, really interesting. That's great. Yeah, we've built that uh, into our, our HPB or um, now we've built in a fellow swap with our Methodist transplant colleagues. Yeah. Yeah, well, you guys have been working with them with intrahepatic cholangio. I'm glad because um, Mark Gabriel, I know um, over the years through transplant and and uh, I had to get him on the phone on a Zoom with our hepatologist when we had a patient when we wanted to do our first intrahepatic cholangio for transplant. And um, I had to get him on the phone and and kind of help persuade the hepatologist to get them on board. So I'm I'm I'm. It's great that you guys have have made that collaboration, and I'm delighted to hear that it's filtered down to the fellows. I mean, our fellows um, love the swap. The Memorial Fellows love the swap. You know, I mean, it's really impressive how 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 different everybody does things. Yeah, that's mm. great. That's true. Wow. So now, twenty years later, can you tell us a little bit about your practice at WashU now in terms sure. of transplant and HPB and and how mm -hmm. things are are run there? We have a nice, a nice setup at WashU. You know, we've two groups. We've one group um, who do uh, transplant, and three of the surgeons within that group do hepatobiliary surgery as well, myself included. And then we have a separate group that are just HBB, and we have a very good relationship with them. And I know that doesn't exist in all institutions, but we're very lucky that we have. Our transplant HPB surgeons work very well with the HPB only surgeons. And so we have joint conferences for pancreas and liver, which is hugely valuable because we all have lots of different areas of expertise that we can add. Um, and uh, collegially and uh, working together, I think we, we uh, really help the whole program uh, be stronger and better. Um, and so my practice is about half and half transplant and, um, and HPB and HPB I do all sorts of liver, pancreas. During COVID, because of the downtime from traveling, I learned how to use the robot. So now I do a lot of robotics, which is phenomenal. I love it. And I was like such a negative Nelly about the robot. I was like, oh my God, I'm never going to learn the robot. I can't learn anything new, like it's torture. And uh, But now I love it. And um, uh, that's thanks to my colleague, Adil Khan, <laughs> who was like, Magella, you're going to be left behind. You have to learn. All the young people want to learn the robot. And I'm like, okay, well, I better learn. So, um, but it's been, it's been really brilliant. And um, Adil has, has really driven a huge robotics program at our place, both in uh, HBB and in transplant. And so um, I think that's a great benefit for um, anybody coming in training. And I think that's what they want. You know, I mean, you guys tell me, I think everybody is interested. I think the robot affords you the ability to do so much more uh, minimally invasively than we could do before. So I think that's a really exciting area of, um, of my practice anyway. Yeah, I agree with that. So what, um, what types of cases and pathologies are you using the robot for? Do you try to approach everything with the robot these days if you can, or is there only certain things? I'm still at the sort of earlier stage of doing, I do all my donor nephrectomies robotically, which is a great case to do kind of for um, learning. 
um, from a HBB standpoint, we, I try to approach most things. So like distal pancreatectomies for sure. I mean, that's a no brainer. I haven't done a Whipple yet. I just have, I'm not good enough. Um, but uh, Adil has done several and I've, I've watched him do some and I, I feel like I'll, I'll, I'll do it at some point, but I, I just, I think they're hard. Uh, liver resection. So I haven't done a complete liver resection yet, but I've been mobilizing the porta, mobilizing the liver. I just haven't completed the parenchymal transection um, yet, but we're working towards that. Obviously, I've done um, segment two, three resections on the robot and that kind of thing. So yeah, we're we're trying. I mean, obviously, I don't know that we can we can do everything on the robot. Like I did a redo, redo, reop, pilar plagio the other day with portal vein involvement. You know, I mean, it's going to be. It'll be a few years before I'm ever going to do that on the robot, you know, but I mean, could we get there? I, I'm sure we could. I mean, given how mm. amazing the technology is. Um, yeah. And I'm sure there are people out there who do these complicated cases, but I'm definitely not there yet, but I'd like to learn. So I'm curious, this is a real problem with robotics that a seasoned surgeon has to now learn how to use the robot. And it's not like you're doing hernias and gallbladders on Tuesdays, right? So how did you jump in? It sounds like donor nephrectomy is probably a good case. That's one question. And then you said you did like the portal mobilization and things like that. And then did your partner do the transaction or, you know, just, how are you kind of getting over that curve? The way we've approached it and Adil was the one who sort of started the program, because this is a great problem and something that I've yeah thought about over the years is like how do you learn because I've learned a lot of new things as an attending you know my fellowship covered certain things and I think this is something that fellows need to understand and be ready to do it's like you don't learn everything in fellowship you probably don't learn 50% of what you're going to do in the future in fellowship and technologies and things change throughout your career and so you have to be prepared to learn how to do new things I learned how to do pancreas transplant was one of the first things I learned how to do. Then I learned how to do lap donors because we weren't doing lap um, nephrectomies when I was a mm. fellow. So I learned how to do that. Then, um, and then obviously we transitioned to the robot. We'll get to that in a minute. Then uh, one of my colleagues left who was doing pedi uh, pediatric liver transplant. And so I had to go back and reapprentice um, liver transplantation for kids, even though I had done it in, in my uh, training. Um, and now I run the pediatric program there. And it's just like, you know, you have to be prepared to learn all of, the, all of these things. And that's kind of why it, when it came around to people doing the robots, I was like, oh my God, I can't learn something else new. I'm just mm. going to kill myself because it's so hard to learn something new. And, uh, but then I did it. And then I was so um, motivated to do more because um, the technology really does lend itself to um, converting open surgery to robotic surgery. Mm. But yes, there is a learning curve. And honestly, you would say, well, then aren't you taking cases away from the fellows? But honestly, the fellows are better than me. They're teaching me how to do things. You know, they're like, they're no, 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 try this, try that. And yes, one of my colleagues, you know, a deal would be um, on standby um, to help out. But um, uh, even when I'm doing donor nephrectomies, like I'll do part, the fellow will do part. Um, and uh, and I think, you know, we've created a really good training program for the fellows um uh with the steps of the operations kind of pulled out we have a really good sim lab with the steps of the operation kind of on simulation and so that's really helped and um you know Adil is working on publishing that and some of it's already published and I think though these kind of things will really help other centers develop the ability to be able to work on training programs for their own 
fellows um, and junior faculty and mid-level faculty and people who want to learn something new because the robot's not going to be the only technology we're going to see in our lifetimes or certainly in your lifetimes it might be mine but there's probably going to be you know more that'll come through in, in your surgical careers that you'll have to figure out how to learn and how to teach was it a struggle to get institutional support because you know you take somebody who's a senior surgeon who's probably moving pretty quickly through cases and I'm sure you slowed down particularly early on what, what was the administration's kind of uh, response to that you know I think one of the things that um, had really slowed down our robotic program in the beginning was not having a good support team in the operating room and once we we figured that out and we had some of our transplant nurses really sort of stepped up to the plate and sort of started learning robotics and then um, our senior lead, Miranda Scher, sort of training the rest of the team. And um, and that's been life-changing because now we have a team. The fellow never has to scrub at the table. That's I should have mentioned that earlier. So the fellow's always at one of the consoles. And uh, because we have um, an RFNA who scrubs at the table, or a PA who scrubs at the table, who does all the assist work. That part's been life-changing. And the institution were bought into us growing the robotics program. Honestly, I think COVID helped because um, it was really only cancer and transplant that were the most active, particularly in the early months of COVID when everything was shut down. And so, you know, if you took longer in the operating room, it wasn't such a big deal because there wasn't that much happening. It does take a commitment and institutional support, but institutions, once they see the growth happening, sometimes they don't want to come out and do the support initially because they sort of want to see the proof of the pudding before they'll give you the support. But but uh, I think at our institution, we were lucky. We got a lot of support up front and, uh, and it's really worked out well. So, you know, one of the topics we did want to discuss, you know, mostly for the junior audience is talking a little bit about hyalurcalangio. It's not something that we've ever covered on our podcast because not that many people specialize in it, but certainly you have a lot of expertise there. So, I, you know, I was just wondering if you could kind of run through at WashU where you have transplant and non-transplant surgeons, how do you decide who gets to hyalur? Which are the patients that you sort of insist get a transplant eval before going to the operating room? And sort of how do you approach that that question in a department that has both? It's a great question. And um, these are these are challenging cases, no matter what way you look at them. Many times the patients will come to one group or the other group. There's a hotline that cases come in through just like a regular transfer line. There's um, like the cancer center and then there's direct physician referrals. So patients can come from anywhere. We also all between the transplant surgeons who do HPV and the HPV surgeons all cover the same call schedule. So, you know, we use patients will turn up on call as well. So the patients can end up coming to anybody, but we, because we have such a good collaborative relationship between us and the HPV surgeons, all the patients get discussed at, at imaging conference. Nobody goes to the operating room um, without, a, certainly not a hyaluronic, without being discussed at, at imaging conference. And we've obviously dedicated radiologists, as you guys have at your own place, who are really focused on this area and who really help us with that. More recently, we have moved to really getting an MRI and a CTA on everybody if there's any question of vessel involvement. So that we're really kind of defining what's involved. And in those cases that are obviously resectable, they go to resection and whoever owns the patient will do it. Now, if they need a vascular resection, one of us will probably go help them if it's one of the HBB surgeons, if they want help, we'll work and do the case um, uh, in tandem or we'll come in for um, some part of the case to help out. Um, and then if the case comes to me directly, like my one the other day, you know, I'll just end up doing it um, myself uh, with the fellow. 
it isn't like one person does the hyalur, one group does the hyalur, one doesn't. It's not like that at all. It's very open. But the, the key is, is having that multidisciplinary approach and having that collegiality between the groups so that nobody's trying to do one or the other. Um, and of course, we don't always get it right. Sometimes we do have an R1 resection because we do our best to, to get them to think that they're resectable and, we, and, we, and they're not. And for some patients, we do get it right and we have an R0 resection and resection was the right thing to do. For anybody who has nodal positive disease, we don't, um, they can't get transplanted because we know the results are terrible if there's no positive disease. And now it's obviously not great for resection. And, you know, all of our patients who have no positive disease, if we're even thinking about resection, we'll get uh, upfront chemotherapy. But, but at least that helps define if you're going to go down the resection or the transplant path. And we have these pretty frank discussions with the patients if they're borderline resectable, because if you do go down the transplant path, and when I say borderline, like I'm talking about, like you could do an arterial resection uh, or a venous resection, but you're not sure if you're going to get a clear margin or not. And they're no negative. And you sort of say, well, this patient may well do better with transplantation. And these are the very tricky patients um, to, to determine who is the, you know, who's the best one to, to transplant and who's the best one to resect. And I think Chris Croom wrote a nice paper from uh, Mayo Jacksonville a few years ago, and he talked about, you know, should we be transplanting resectable patients? And I think, you know, he looked at the whole cohort and said, no, if you're resectable, you should still undergo resection. The results are better. If you're unresectable, you should definitely undergo transplant. But if you're borderline, that those patients, because of the risk of R1 uh, resection and you're no negative, you're probably better off having a transplant. But again, these are very, very fine cohort of patients and they're very highly selected um, to do better. So, of course, they're always going to do better on paper than resection patients in the long run um, because they have to wait so long for their transplants in the first place. And um, and they go through so much and a lot of patients fall off the fall off the list. But so highly selected group, but um, but they do do well with transplant, and some do very well with resection. So uh, you know, I, I think it's it's a, it's a, whoever ends up in one path or the other. You have that frank discussion with the patient if they're borderline resectable, because once you go down one path, it's very hard to go back. If you do, you know, if you if you operate on somebody for uh, a resection and you breach the porta, it's kind of hard to, to consider transplantation for those patients. We've done a few Mayo Clinic, don't do any. We have done a few um, who have done okay, but for the most part, we don't like the tumor to have been interfered with. And then if you go down the transplant path, you're really blasting the hyaline with radiation. It would be very difficult to go back and try to do a resection at a later date. So it is one way or the other. And so that's something that's very important to, to define for the patients and the family um, and have a lengthy discussion with them. So just to get this straight, the, for the majority of patients who come into y'all, y'all's practice, who the main decision point, at least at first, seems to be whether they are anatomically resectable. And if it's felt in a multidisciplinary setting that this is an anatomically resectable patient, feel confident, R0 resection, they're going to proceed to resection um, at your institution. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. You know, as you mentioned, you know, about Dr. Kroom, and I, I've seen a lot of talk about whether at least in social media, and then some articles about whether all patients with Hyler would benefit from transplantation, assuming that everyone can get an organ, so to speak. Yeah, um, yeah. You know what I mean? I think, you know, you have um, Shishir Mathel's group, you know, published, and we were part of that, where they looked at resection versus transplant and pulled out the cohort of patients who, you know, were fit, it, were fit within the strict criteria of three centimeter mass being the max and um, blah, blah, blah no nodes, et cetera, et cetera. And, 
And uh, they still showed, you know, a clear difference between transplantation and, and resection, transplantation having a better outcome. But I think, you know, that's a multi-center, multi-data, different management strategies. You know, I think it's very difficult to really um, say that that's the be all and end all and all patients should be transplanted, number one. Number two, transplant is not without its own problems. If a person develops um, positive nodes, they're immediately off the list and they have no options. Um, you, you need an organ. Um, and Mayo Clinic have, um, I, I think they have significantly lessened, if not stopped doing living donor for cholangios because they're so challenging to do. The hilum has become has become very hostile after the radiation. Um, and uh, so these patients, you know, do have complications. And so it's it's not an ideal solution either for hyler uh, for many of these patients. Um, so I'm certainly not an advocate for transplant for resectable patients. Um, but I think it is it is very worthwhile considering in patients who are borderline, particularly those patients with a left-sided tumor, whereas in the past, before transplant, you would be doing a left triseg on those patients. The chances of getting an R0 resection on those patients is probably really low. And I think really benefit from transplant. But um, resection is in the eye of the beholder. And so resectability to one surgeon is different to another. And if we could fix anything, in transplant and HBB and transplant oncology is defining and having all surgeons on the same page. And, and I find that will be very challenging for us to ever reach that because we all have different skills. And so defining resectability as being the same across the board is gonna be hard. Yeah, I have a hard time with a lot of those papers that you said when they're multi-center, multi-approach, multi-brained, so to speak. and. Yeah. Um, another humongous thing that I've really, you know, now a little bit further into practice and academics thinking about all this data in the terms of the quality of the imaging at these individual centers, you know, what are they looking at and whether they think they're resectable or not really has to do with what they're presented with as a picture too, and yeah. that's variable. So it's just very hard, I think, to tease out. Now, just for our listeners, for those who may not be completely familiar with the management of these patients, could you describe for for maybe some of our, our trainees here who will be listening, what the, the workup and management is for a patient who's undergoing transplantation for hyalur cholangiocarcinoma. And I don't mean the imaging and stuff like that, but in terms of radiation, timing, and then surgery. Sure, absolutely. So everybody gets a diagnostic laparoscopy. Actually, at, at the time we first see them, we do a sampling biopsy of, of their nose with endoscopic ultrasound. Everybody. Everybody, anybody who comes as a potential transplant candidate, because if they have positive notes, they're they're going down a different path. Not just no. clinically positive notes. Right. If the nodes look normal, is there a specific node that you always do or? It's a little bit random, so it's not very scientific, um, but it's whatever nodes that they can see to biopsy. Okay. Yeah. But because I think, you know, we all know that you can have big nodes uh, in higher cases that are benign, uh, but that's step one. Then the patients see oncology and at our institution, we switch from doing a long course of radiation to short course SBRT um, about three or four years ago. And uh, so that's a short course radiation for the patients. Um, they get um, induction um, gemcitabine to start, then they get their radiation. And then um, after their radiation, we maintain them on Zaloda. The radiation 
really um, kind of does fry up the, the porta somewhat. So in the operating room, uh, it can sometimes be very challenging to operate on these patients. Not all of the patients get the radiation at our institution, as I'm sure you are aware of patients. Uh, same at your institution, patients come with various different levels of treatment before they see us sometimes. Um, but before we list them for transplant, we redo the diagnostic laparoscopy, which may or may not be overkill, but we do have a number of patients who drop out, even finding a tiny speck, you know, if we go, go look up behind the right side of the liver and find a tiny little speck, it turns out to be cancer. And those patients don't get listed for transplant. We redo the EUS and biopsy the nodes again. And, um, and if they're all clear, we take them and put them on the list for transplant. When we take them to the operating room, so this is kind of step three, if they, they come in for transplant, we call in a backup for transplant because we know some of the patients will drop off even at the time um, they're being brought in for, for transplant. So we bring them to the operating room, we open them, we do a full nodal dissection at that point in time, we send that to the lab. And then if the nodes are all negative, then we divide the lower end of the bile duct. Um, we've counseled the patient beforehand, depending on their age, et cetera, et cetera, if they're suitable for a Whipple or not. Um, if the bottom of the bile duct comes back suspicious or positive, we'll try and go deeper and kind of dig into the head of the pancreas and take out more, uh, because obviously we want to avoid doing a Whipple if we can. And uh, then uh, once we have our nodes negative and our bile duct sorted out, um, then we go ahead with the, with the transplant. Obviously, if anything turns up positive or this metastatic disease, we um, close up the patient and we take the backup. So it's pretty harsh. You know, it's it's a heavy reality that the patients have to deal with and they really need to be counseled beforehand to, as to what they're getting into. And as you well know, talking to patients with cancer, they only hear the end result a lot of the times. They don't hear the journey along the way. And it's it's uh, it's challenging. And then in the operating room, we can run into problems, like I said, with the radiation. The portal vein <clears throat> stenosis rate is, is, is much higher than it is in standard transplantation. Um, the artery, we try to avoid using the main artery if we can. I tend to use the splenic artery for inflow because it's out of the field of the radiation. Mm. Um, and you can use a conduit either, but that's a lot of hassle to put on. And then the bile duct is usually reconstructed, obviously, with a rue because we've taken away the whole bile duct of the recipient to replace as much as we can. Now to go to the flip side for a resectable patient, who do you consider for neoadjuvant therapy? Do you believe that that has a role in this disease? Patients who are clinically node positive, um, but are otherwise fit and have a resectable tumor, do they go on to neoadjuvant therapy in, in, in your in Yale's practice and make it to resection? Um, what are your thoughts on that? You know, generally speaking, we will give neoadjuvant therapy to anybody with suspicious nodal disease and um, uh, or with biopsy proven nodal disease, because, I mean, we know the outcomes. And I mean, obviously, we cancel the patients. The outcomes are not going to be great when we're dealing with no positive disease regardless. Um, but I think if they have a chance of resection, we will go ahead with with resection, but only after they've re received therapy. I mean, it's so far from ideal, um, you know, but it's the best that we can offer these patients. And you said single agent gem for pre-transplant. Is that what you're using? That's pre, pre That's well? just for pre-transplant. We certainly give gemsys for all of the neoadjuvant therapies for the non-transplant patients. One more question about the initial workup and everything. Is there are there things that a surgeon who doesn't do Hyler, but is an HPV surgeon in the community, and they send them, you know, they call them when there's a Hyler clangio. Are there things that outside institutions mess up? before they send the patient to you? 
kind of no-nos in the initial workup and management of a hiler that you would yes. want people not to do? Yes, that's, this is a, a good question. I'm glad you, you brought that up because something that would be of value to the community, and I'm sure many people who are community HPV surgeons will know this, but but sometimes the community HPV surgeons don't even see these patients beforehand, but it's trying to get the message to the biliary doctors not to biopsy the tumor um, transylomically. So don't biopsy it through the duodenum. Biopsy the nodes till the cows come home because that doesn't matter because the nodes, if the nodes are positive, they're not going to get a transplant. But if the nodes are negative and they biopsy the tumor, they really do um, take transplantation off the table. And again, Mayo Clinic are the strictest, they are the strict rule followers and they follow the rules and their results as a result are better. And when you look at that, the paper, um, which is a, uh, one of the earlier kind of uh, conglomerate papers, I forget who was the first author. I know we were in it in the study group, um, but they compared um, the results of all of the, I think it was 12 centers at the time were doing hyalurcolangio and transplantation. And they identified that if if you were outside of, of the Mayo criteria, so outside of a three centimeter mass or, you know, any of those criteria that weren't followed, that um, read like redo operation, EUS and biopsy of the tumor, et cetera, et cetera. Um, any of those patients said that the results were worse. And so I think, you know, the, the Mayo Clinic criteria are are there and they're 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 the, gonna, gonna give you the best results. Now, having said that. Our cohort, we published in HPV a few years ago, and we have a 50%, I think, seven-year survival or something like that. That's still remarkable for a disease in patients who are completely unresectable and have zero options. You know, mm -hmm. so, I mean, when you look at it from that perspective, it's a win-win. Um, and so, yes, we pushed the boat out. Our results are not the same as Mayo Clinic. We have far less PSC patients than they do. Uh, which I think um, helps their um, their results curve, um, but also we we do consider patients who've had an EUS biopsy, and we do consider patients for right or for wrong, who um, who may have had a, an operation beforehand, and probably as a result our results suffer. But I still think that it's a benefit if you can transplant somebody with a five year survival rate of fifty percent for cancer that has zero percent survival. If you don't, if they don't have anything, I think you're you're winning. 0% chance of five-year survival, you're saying? Yes. Yeah. Strong um, feelings about how to drain the biliary tree? You mean pre-transplant? Or even if it's, you know, if you're going to resect, you know, just in general, how do you guys approach? Do you always do ERCP first? And then what if that's difficult and they can't get across it? I mean, I think we're, when it comes to transplant, you just want to get their bilirubin down to be able to get them treatment. The way we prefer, obviously, is, is ERCP. It's not always possible. And sometimes we have to do a PTC. It's, it hasn't affected our results. And honestly, the numbers that we've had PTCs in are so minimal. I don't think it would. It, it would we'd, we'd have to have a lot more to even show a difference. But we haven't noticed an increased fall off the list in anybody who's had PTCs. Um, for resection, we just aggressively drain the side that's going to the future liver remnant. So... Um, you know, with the ERCP again, preferably, but if they need a PTC to have an undrained section, especially if we're dealing with a small left lateral that we're trying to preserve to do a right triseg, we'll aggressively drain however we need to, because I think the 
the long-term survival of the patient is minimizing sepsis. I think sepsis is what kills these future liver remnants that are, are uh, borderline in size. And so if you can sort of drain the, the sepsis as much as you can, um, the patients will do better. And obviously the liver will, will be functionally better for it. So We did actually just recently, um, were able to talk with Dr. Shimal Shah on the podcast, one of our more recent podcast episodes. And we talked about transplantation for colorectal liver mets, which seems to be a very popular thing to talk about right now. I know a lot of places are starting to consider at least on protocol doing that sort of thing. Do y'all have a protocol for that or any thoughts on, on transplantation for this disease as a leading center for transplantation in our country? We do. So this is why transplant oncology is so exciting. And um, because What's interesting, well, we just talked about hyaluronchalangio, and when you look at the 12 centers and that um, older publication showing that if you were outside of bounds on hyalur, that you're probably going to, you know, you're going to do worse. And while you'll still have a pretty good five-year survival, it's not as good as if you stay within the, within the boundaries. I think when it comes to um, more advanced HCC, when it comes to colorectal metastases, and when it comes to intrahepatic cholangio, we don't know yet what we're doing. Well, there's probably more evidence of, of advanced HCC, which we may or may not want to get into, but for sure, where there are patients out there with advanced HCC that can be downstaged and can do extremely well for, from transplantation that are not even getting exception points within the current um, climate at the moment. But that's another story. So when it comes to colorectal cancer, we've been very interested in colorectal cancer for actually for uh, quite a long time. In 2017 and 18, we had a couple of patients show up. One of them had a history of, of, of colorectal cancer. She was cirrhotic and needed a liver transplant. And so um, she'd been five years out and she'd had liver mets, kind of discussed it back and forth. And, and we decided to transplant her and she did great. And we did another patient who um, had uh, pump therapy Actually, she was biphenotypic with um, intrahepatic um, cholangio slash um, HCC. She had liver failure after pump therapy and she had a small single tumor and we transplanted her and she did well. And this is, you know, several years ago. So anyway, we kind of had a couple of transplants that we had done for various different reasons that were sort of outside of the normal transplant oncology. And because we're such an aggressive cancer center when it comes to HCC and Hyler, we've had the program in place for a long time. We were really kind of interested in getting into the colorectal uh, meths field when it started happening. And so, yes, we have a protocol in place. We've only done six or seven patients, so not very many. Um, interestingly, a few of the patients that we've done have developed liver failure after having HAI pump therapy. So we, um, you know, have taken the approach of looking at these patients, if they've developed liver failure, whether or not they still have cancer or not, we, you know, we've taken the approach of transplanting some of them. We've also transplanted some patients who do not have HAI pump, so it's not a prerequisite from our perspective. So we're taking patients who are, are being referred to us with unresectable um, colorectal cancer, um, obviously, they have to have a history of having had um, neoadjuvant therapy. Their primary has to be out at least six months, but ideally a year, because many, many patients we're seeing now are coming with their primaries with them because yeah. nobody's taking the primaries out anymore. So, um, so we're seeing these patients, and sometimes if they have still active, uh, unresectable disease in their liver, and they've had multiple iterations of, of chemotherapy, we're considering them then for HAI pump therapy with um, systemic chemotherapy 
putting in the pump at the same time as we take out their primary and then we wait six months and we see what happens and if they're still um, if they're not progressing in their liver obviously they haven't developed metastatic disease then we're considering them for transplant and we're kind of following the Oslo criteria I'm sure Dr Shaw talked about this on the podcast but uh, we're you know we're measuring metabolic tumor volume we have one of our radiologists is kind of um, has figured out how to do all of this stuff as part of his research project so we're measuring metabolic tumor volume, obviously we're measuring CEA, we're getting FONG scores, we're doing Oslo scores, and we're trying to keep the patients within um, Oslo in order to um, have some sort of standardization. One of my real aims with AHBPA and my connection with ASDS, I think is a, is a bonus because I've just created a, um, a task force um, within um, AHBPA for transplant oncology. I'm on, I'm on the cancer liaison for the ASTS task force for transplant oncology. And so together with Talia Baker, who's the chair of the ASTS transplant oncology task force, we are going to collaborate uh, between and get not only um, the transplant surgeons, the HPB surgeons and surgical oncologists, but also engage some um, medical oncologists and hepatologists to try to help us standardize not only for colorectal cancer, but for some of these other cancers like intrahepatic phalangio and figure out really who are the best patients who will benefit from transplant and where does transplant fit in the algorithm? Because it's not, we don't want transplant or transplant shouldn't be considered, oh, it's the last resort, like there's nothing else left, let's just transplant the patient. It shouldn't be considered too early. It is a scarce resource, so we have to, to measure that. We have to have equipoise. We have to have a good survival um, for these patients and, um, and a good long-term survival. And that's been shown by the Oslo people, um, you know, that they do have, even patients who develop recurrence do have a good long-term survival. But it's still only a few patients who are ever going to make it to transplant like Hyler. But we have to do it as a collaborative group because if we don't, it's going to end up like HCC and we're going to have endless years of having debates. Oh, HCC, resection versus transplant. Like, I mean, give me a break. Let's do it together and figure out properly, you know, where transplant fits. And then nobody can say, oh, the transplanters don't know what they're doing. They're just going off transplanting anybody. And, and we won't say, oh, the surgical oncologists won't send us any patients for transplant, even though we think these patients should be transplanted. If we do it together as a team, I think it could really make a difference. And so my plan with Dr. Baker is to get these two groups together. And um, we're going to try to, in the next, um, you know, 12 to 24 months, have some consensus conferences where we get together and try to go through each of these cancers on three separate occasions and try to figure out at least where we are today and figure out what we what we're doing and try to do it cohesively that's fantastic well come in just one one quick question about that so it, it caught me that you said that you are doing a pump and then sort of like waiting for the transplant while they get pump therapy it's an interesting concept you know, you're sort of selecting out the patients that aren't going to develop extra hepatic disease because you're really focusing on the hepatic yeah. therapy. That's it. I mean, do you think that there's something there? Like these patients should be on pump for like a year. And then if they don't develop any peritoneal or lung mets, that's the patient that can really be liver only and be helped by transplant. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that. And yeah. um, and we haven't, we haven't done a, a enough. Now, a couple of things about the pump. 
Number one, a lot of places don't do it. So you're not going to get everyone to do a pump. Number two, a lot of ways to get these patients transplanted is using living donor. If you have a pump in, it makes the hilum a little more hostile. So um, okay. it's not um, as straightforward to do a living donor. And people who are doing living donors in these like Cleveland Clinic and, and um, Rochester are not um, too happy with the pump. And they're okay. not big believers in pump and they're not big pump centers. We we are big believers in the pump. So, you know, we're definitely, it's, it's incorporated in our algorithm. Um, for Again, for right or for wrong, we'll have to, only time will tell. Yeah. But um, but also, um, uh, we're now, and also now we're doing the pump robotically, which um, is, uh, I think will make a difference to the hilum. I'm not sure if it's the chemotherapy or the surgery or the combination of both that makes it hostile. But uh, time will tell. We haven't transplanted anyone who's had a robotic pump yet, but um, but we'll see. But I do feel part of me feels, and and not my my colleagues don't necessarily agree with me when we when it comes to colorectal cancer. But I feel like we've proven in in um, Hyler Colangio. If you look at the um, Julie Heimbach, I think it's Julie Heimbach's paper or she's on it anyway, from, I think it's 2020, they they published their results with living donor and hydrocolangio, and they showed um, that the response to therapy made an enormous difference. And so patients who had a complete response to therapy had significantly less recurrence rates compared to patients who mm-hmm. didn't have a complete response to therapy. So I just feel like in all things cancer, response to therapy does say a lot and so if we pump the patients and they have good response to therapy are they going to do better with with liver transplant i don't know the answer to that you know i talked to my colleagues in in our colleagues in memorial and um you know who are who are um obviously the pump gurus and um you know they might say well transplant isn't necessary at all because if we use the pump you can just treat them with the pump and then if their liver fails oh sure you can transplant them then but that's not really the essence of transplant oncology the essence of transplant oncology is finding the right place for transplant and the right time for transplant you know you shouldn't have to burn out the liver and then salvage with a transplant some patients will end up like that but not everybody by any means um so I think we have to find the role of the pump and the role of transplant and see can the two actually support one another and then there will be patients who will be transplanted without any pump therapy or without any need for pump therapy well I suspect it's very nice to transplant patients who are not in some degree of liver failure in terms of their recovery and doing well Mm -hmm. especially when they've had like five liver resections (laughs) and radiation therapy and pump and all that sort of stuff yeah they can be extremely challenging it's interesting to hear that there's complications from the pump. We've done a lot of pump episodes. Nobody's mentioned any complications at all. So. Yeah, that's true. They don't really <laughs> write about them either. My uh, our, my research resident just sent in a paper. She's going to present at the HPPA. It's only nine patients, I think, but it's all the patients that we've transplanted who've had a pump. So um, uh, patients either who've had intrahepatic cholangio or um, colorectal metastases or liver failure from pump therapy um who have ended up with um a transplant and so just some of the issues that arise as a result of pump therapy well i think you know in the interest of time we could probably just maybe finish up with your your year of leadership in the hpba and and some of the things that you had hoped to accomplish and look forward to continuing to work on and in, in your vision for the hpba so well one of them is transplant oncology which we've we've talked about and i i'm really um i'm very excited and i know um, uh, our colleagues and my colleagues in the ASTS are very excited to really sort of iron this area out and, and, and figure out um, what we're doing in a collaborative way. Um, and then the other thing that I've really 
um, been interested in in this year and and uh, uh, is peer support. And so I think one of the things that um, certainly from the um, SWOT analysis uh, that you know that came out from the SWOT analysis on education and fellows and junior faculty and and just in general from being a member of the HBPA for the last several years, I have always a lot of people who come up to me to talk to me about various different problems or issues that they're having in their practice. And so we decided to um, put this program, which was funded by the foundation together uh, to train. Um, we offered it out to membership to train as a peer supporter. And so we actually just did our training a couple of weeks ago uh, with this um, uh, ENT surgeon called Joe Shapiro. She's originally an ENT surgeon, but has gotten into peer support over the last couple of decades and is very experienced at it. And so she did a training for us, um, I think 15 or 18 people trained all together. And so we're going to introduce the whole concept at the meeting. Um, Dr. Shapiro is going to give one of the, um, the presidential lecture and uh, talk about the usefulness of peer support and, and, um, and how it can help. And, and uh, we, we will open it up to membership then. Um, and it, the idea is that if you have a horrible complication or if you have, you know, some stressor of work related to work related, surgery related stress, that um, you would be able to call a colleague who is outside of your institution and who has expertise and has probably been through the same thing and been in the same hole. Um, and been as miserable as you're feeling um, at that particular time and um, and be able to offer some help and some guidance as to how to get back to normalcy after you've had some some complication or some issue. Um, and so that's, I think, a very exciting program that I, I feel is needed and I feel will be um, will be desired by uh, the membership. Um, and so we'll see what the uptake of that is. But I hope by introducing it at the meeting that everyone will be there and, and understand the concept and then we'll see what the what the interest is after that. Obviously, okay. if we need to train more people, we will do that at a later date. But, um, but we started off with uh, with 15 or 18 people just so we would have a cohort. And it's a good, diverse group of, of varying different practices of some communities, some um, academics, some more pancreas, some more liver. So we should have a good spectrum, some more senior and some more junior. So we have a good spectrum of surgeons um, to be available for peer support when it's needed. So I guess um, as we wrap up, the, we usually like to let you have the open floor and open mic. If there's anything else you'd like to finish on or suggest or use the podcast as an avenue to connect with our members? Sure. Well, I think um, <clears throat> the other thing that we didn't really talk about is education and training. And, uh, you know, I think the, the group um, put together uh, by Brenton Visser and Adnan Al-Saidi and, and all of the other people. I know you guys were involved in parts of it as well, but just to, to put this analysis together to um, this task force to really understand and get the information from all of the stakeholders involved in training to really understand how we can go forward and make HPB trained surgeons just the cream of the crop and, and really um, highlight their training to the hospitals and the administrative leadership where they're applying for jobs. Um, and, uh, and I think we've created beyond education and training, we're gonna create a group who are really going to work on how do we put together, do we want to put together questions and exam? Um, you know, how do we really make the training um, advertisable 
to um, hospitals and academic centers to, to highlight the expertise of these um, trainees. I think making jobs is a challenge. I think, um, you know, everybody always is worried that we're training too many people. But I think if we make the programs who are training um, these fellows to be uh, to hold to, to a particular standard, then the trainees that are coming out will be really well trained. Um, but I think it's a challenge no, no matter what we do. I mean, we all come from different backgrounds. I come from a transplant background. You guys may come from um, HBB uh, um, and Sir John uh, backgrounds or you're working in Sir John fields. And so it's very challenging when we have these three different paradigms all kind of, kind of training this, the same thing, but we have to make um, the HBB purists highlighted, I think, in their training. And so I think that's got to be one of the focuses of the HBBA going forward. Dr. Doyle, um, you bring up the different paths to HPB uh, from the trainee perspective and the perspective of someone applying with a desire to become an HPB surgeon. What do you think are the relative advantages and disadvantages of each path, um, specifically as it pertains to applying to fellowship? Yeah, it's a great question, you know, and that's another thing for a podcast is pipeline is how do we get, um, you know, really good people engaged in our field um, and then at the end of the day, have them stressed about having a job. Um, you know, I think um, because it's such a great field, but I can tell you when I left Ireland, you know, we have like an exit interview when we finish our training. Back in those days, there was no women um, attendings in general surgery when I was training in Ireland, in the whole country. Um, there was one plastics woman. I think that was about it. Yeah, it's changed now a lot. But um, but they were like, oh, you want to do a patibulary surgery? Oh, okay. Would you not think about something, you know, where there's a job like colorectal or breast or whatever? And I was like, well, no, I really like HB surgery. And they were kind of like, oh, well, hope you go to America then. Kind of good luck to you now. <laughs> All the best. Oh and, um, and so I was like, okay. You know, so it is kind of hard because we want to, you know, you want to attract the best people into our field because it's so technically challenging and and um, and mentally challenging when it comes to the crazy cancers we deal with. And uh, but um, but it is hard when there when there isn't like a ton of jobs, and so um, uh, that's a challenge. Number one, I don't know how to figure that out because there's only so many cases in the country a year, and until we find a way to send all of the cases to you know to the surgeons who are practicing hpb surgery you know and then you have people not doing one or two cases a year um i don't know how to to make that any better but the advantages and disadvantages of of the training i think you know the the other two fields surgeon can transplant when you combine those with hpb training you have a, an additional part of your career so if you're a transplant surgeon and you do HBB, so you start off in your job and say there isn't much HBB or the HBB groups don't talk to the transplant groups and there's a big divide and you have to just do transplants. You can still make a living, you can still get paid, you can still bring in our views. If you train in surgery, you get a much more in-depth um, cancer focus. I'm sure you spend, I know you spend time on, with medical oncology, you spend time with radiation oncology, you, know, you spend time in a lot of different specialties, but many of the surgeon programs don't have a very big HPB focus. So it's hard to really get that in-depth HPB focus, uh, but you get a lot more um, cancer focus. Um, and then when you're in HPB, I think you're probably the best trained for HPB because you're getting not only all HPB cases throughout your time, whether it's a year or two years, um, and you get a good cancer focus. 
Um, so I think if you want to be a pure HPV surgeon, it is a good way. I will say that when before I did my my training, I had planned to do some transplant no matter what, because I felt that from a technical standpoint, that, that would give me an advantage. Um, having come from that training paradigm, I do feel it does give you a technical advantage from a vascular restriction perspective. Uh, so there are some advantages in having some transplant training. But now when you go to MIS and robotics and all of those things that have come into training, you know, programs that have a lot of, of robotics focus and MIS focus are going to become very attractive because now it's not so much about big open surgery, but it's about doing a lot of stuff minimally invasively. Um, but still, there's still going to be a need for that technical stuff um, when it comes to um, vascular resections, because I still think there's going to be a role. There's always going to be a role for those. And as chemotherapies get better and neoadjuvant therapies, um, other neoadjuvant therapies get better, we're going to see more and more patients coming for resection who might need um, more technically challenging resections. And hence the, the reason for us all to work together, because if we don't all utilize our own areas of expertise, we're not doing the best for patients, which at the end of the day is what we're here for. Thank you. So we blew right past an hour. Uh, we appreciate your time tonight. Uh, lots, lots of expertise and lots of topics. I'm sure we could go for another hour if, if you had the time, but we really appreciate your time tonight. We appreciate your work as the president this year uh, of the association. I feel like it's been a good year. And I think that, you know, your, your idea of this peer support, I think is really kind of a game changer uh, for, for a lot of people. I mean, I know as a a young surgeon, particularly I'm at an institution where there's not a lot of people that do what I do. Uh, and it can be a struggle just to find somebody that that has been through, like you said, has had the complication that you have. And and I often make phone calls back to where I did fellowship uh, for that support, but maybe not everybody has that, that clear channel. And so I think to open that up, it's really a, a fantastic project. So I, I just want to say for the, you know, for the people out there, I think it's going to be widely uh, appreciated and, and we really appreciate your efforts as president this year. All right. Well, thank you so much for doing this. You guys are amazing.